Welcome to the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. I'm Kyle Brost, a strategist and changemaker. I'm the CEO of Spark Policy Institute, founder and principal at Choice Strategy Group, and contributor to Forbes, Thrive Global, and Influencer. I lead at the intersection of strategy and impact, where I turn ordinary individuals into strategists and changemakers. Let's get started. Hey, 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 folks, this is Kyle Brost here with another episode of The Art of Strategic Reaction. Today we have on Diane Chang, who is the author of Cool, Calm, and Respected, a leadership coach and uh, someone who found a lot of passion in her own journey and hopes to spread that to other folks. So Diane, welcome to the podcast today. Hey, Kyle. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So Diane, tell me about uh, about your childhood. Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I am a third-generation Chinese South African. Um, I was born and raised in Johannesburg. My childhood was interesting in that when I was younger, my parents owned a Chinese restaurant. And so most of the time, they were actually out at the restaurant, you know, every night um, working. And so we were pretty much raised most of the time by our housekeeper, Um, at the time. And then when I was about nine years old, my parents actually decided to move to Swaziland and start a small business there, um, you know, on their own. And when they left, they left us at home again, you know, with our maid taking care of us and eventually my grandmother taking care of us. And so we we were raised by an extended family, my aunts, my my, um, cousins, um, my uncles, really the whole community, I felt, raised us. And then when I was about 11 years old, um, while in Swaziland, my dad actually um, had a stroke and he passed away. And that further solidified um, kind of how my family really, from an extended perspective, took care of us. Um, And so, yeah, my childhood, I would say, was a little bit unconventional. Um, Every holiday and every vacation, we actually went to Swaziland. We spent our time there helping my mom in her restaurant and hotel. We were, from a very young age, um, you know, helping out washing dishes. We were serving in the restaurant. We were writing invoices. And so I would say that while most people were, you know, having f- fun on their, on their vacations, uh, my sister and I, my older sister and I, because we were old enough, we were doing um, a lot of, we were walk- working a lot. Um, and then, you know, as I grew older, Um, 14, 15, 16, my sister and I really took on more responsibility for taking care of my younger brother and sister. So from a very young age in Johannesburg, um, my older sister and I really became very responsible. So I would say that, again, my childhood, I feel like was a little bit unconventional um, in that we were, um, you know, we needed to take care of so much. uh, And and I've ever since become so responsible. Um, to the point where I have never been drunk. <laughs> my, my, my son, who, um, who, who just cannot get over the fact that I've never been drunk, constantly says, Mom, come and have a drink. Um, I've got to get you drunk. And it's just one of the things where I feel like, you know, um, during, during my college years, um, all along the way, I just felt that I just needed to be strong um, and responsible. So, uh, so, yeah, that's a little bit of my of my childhood. Um, I would say another aspect of it is, you know, I always felt a little bit different growing up. 
um, when I was just in kindergarten, my mom, she wanted uh, my sister and I to go to a um, private Catholic school. Um, in South Africa, you know, under apartheid, we couldn't just go to any school. We couldn't go to government schools that were designated as white-only schools, but we were able to go to um, private schools. And so she um, applied for my sister and I to go into a private convent. My sister was able to get in, but I was the class was full for me. And so um, from the age of five, I actually attended a Jewish school. I was the only Chinese person in the class um, and actually at the age of five could read and write Hebrew. Um, and yeah, and so always felt just a little bit different, right? Um, then eventually I actually managed to get into the the Catholic school, um, and was the only Chinese person in my class till high school. Um, and then in high school, I switched to different school and then there were, um, there were four of us, there were four Chinese people in the class. And so always felt, as I said, just a little bit different, um, felt a sense of belonging because, but at the same time. Um, you know, not so um, in certain situations, as you can imagine. Sure. Well, so I'm assuming that third generation Chinese South African has to be a very small group of people. Yeah, we were less than 1% of the entire population. There were about 10,000 people, um, first to fourth generation Chinese South Africans. Um, Right now, um, you know, after apartheid was dismantled and the borders were opened, um, there are about another, uh, right now, there are about 300,000 new immigrants um, in, in South Africa. So it's still less than 1%, still a very, very small population. Um, but yeah, we definitely a minority in South Africa. So how did that shape your view of the world? I mean, being um, a part of such a small minority? You know, that's a great question. Um At the time, I was probably too young to really understand it. I think that only after I got married and I had my daughter, um, she was two and a half, and my husband and I really came to this realization that, you know, we had grown up um, feeling like second-class citizens, and we really didn't want our daughter to feel the same way. And so we discussed immigrating. You know, we, it was a very hard decision to make because, as, as I mentioned earlier, I have a large extended family there. We're very close to them. We still are very close to them. And so we decided that, you know, if we wanted to have our daughter have just a different frame of reference in terms of who she was, you know, um, we ought to immigrate. And so I think that that's probably um, shaped a decision, I would say. We wanted her to not feel as different as we felt. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. What's interesting is um, you say that you were probably too young to really kind of grasp it all. What experiences helped put those things into perspective? So if you didn't grasp it while it was happening, what experiences did you have later on where you started to realize, oh, that was that was different or that was unique or that separated me? Probably when I turned 30. You know, it's a, it's a, for some people, turning 30 was a big milestone. For me, it actually was the same year that my daughter turned six. And I, I would say that at that age, I suddenly realized, oh my gosh, you know, my mom was only 35 
when my dad passed away. And you start to reflect about, you know, who you are, um, you know, what you've done with your life, um, how does it compare with other people and their lives. And for me, um, that um, kind of, that time was really a reflection for me on, um, you know, that I was different, that my, my mom was different. She had to raise four kids, age 12 to four, um, from a very young age. And I think, um, you know, that really, um, yeah, helped, helped to, 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 to kind of solidify some of the decisions around that. So, I mean, you have this really unique experience growing up. Um, you're in this minority, um, and I don't use that term with any definition behind it other than that you were mm -hmm. a smaller portion of the population. Um, how does that shape the work that you do today? I think that I look for people um, who... That, that's an interesting question, because I haven't really thought about it in those terms, Kyle. Um, you know, because what shapes the work that I do today is more around I want to help people in the same way that I feel throughout my life I've been helped by others. And so trying to make the connection back to, you know, how does being a minority impact that is a really interesting question. Um, well, I mean, you've, you've already articulated some of it. You started uh, ex when you were sharing your childhood, sharing mm -hmm. about how you really were raised by a group, a community of folks, that you had a lot of help and support because obviously your father passed away when you were young. Your mother had a lot of responsibilities. And so it required the help and support of all these other individuals um, and groups of people to help you along the way to get you where you are. And so that piece ties into exactly what you just said, which is you want to be that support because you felt like you had that support from other people. It's, a, it's just, a, you have such a fascinating upbringing, uh, you know, it's just a, a very unique childhood compared to what my upbringing was like. And so I'm, I'm very intrigued by it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because when I think about the fact that, you know, we left South Africa, um, you know, being a minority, to your point, um, we brought our, our daughter over here. She was two and a half. And then, you know, when, my, when, we, we, when we arrived here, my son was born. And it's interesting because they are, you know, through and through um, very much Americanized. At the same time, they also think about their identity. They also think about, you know, what is it like to be Asian American? And what is it like to be a community that is maybe, um, you know, not well served or maybe a little bit misunderstood? Or, um, you know, there's so many definitions of what it is to be Asian American. Um, and so I think that. Um, so I think, well, I think you touch on something really important in terms of identity. Uh -huh. um, and and I don't, I'm, I'm just very fascinated by this whole upbringing and how it ties into our current life experiences. And I'm very fascinated by this idea of identity because I think identity is something that um, so many people are striving to find. And yet mm -hmm. it is such a fluid thing for us. So, you know, it, it, how old's your son? 
My son is 27. Okay, so where, where did he go to college? He went to Northeastern in, in um, Boston. Okay, so while he was in college, if he was at a sporting event and you asked him his identity, it would probably have something to do with you know, a university student, with maybe their mascot, with whatever his interests were at that time, mm-hmm. because that's what he was surrounded with in that moment. And then you put him in a position where maybe he's with um, a lot of family, and so maybe that uh, that upbringing and that cultural heritage starts to come out as part of his identity. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's true for all of us is this idea of identity is just a very fluid element of who we are, and yet we're all trying to find it. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Uh, you know, and it's interesting, my husband actually uh, penned a really nice six word biography and it's Chinese blood African heart and American soul. Mm. And I really found those words, six words, extremely powerful in terms of who we are and who we've become. Because obviously the person that I was when I was in South Africa is very different to the person that I am now, right? Yeah. Having you know gone through the transitions, having lived in the US now for almost 30 years. And so I would say that the sense of identity is now not so much shaped by, you know, not only shaped by the Chinese, that African heart, American soul, but it's also now shaped by who I've become through my professional and personal journey, right? That really is my true identity. You know, we, we, we tell people, we tell people, you know, and I like to say, I like to say, you know, what defines you isn't what you look like, it isn't how you dress. It isn't how much money you make. What defines you is how you treat yourself and how you treat other people. And now that you've gotten me to really think about it in those terms, right? Identity is kind of trying to understand, you know, who am I? How do I treat others? Whether they look like me or not, whether they sound like me or not, right? I mean, how do I appreciate that they have an identity that's unique to them? Um, and how, how do I make sure that I try to understand them better because of that unique identity that each of us has, irrespective of all those other things that I mentioned? Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. And I, lo- I love the six-word uh, statement that your husband came up with. I love that that whole concept of trying to boil down who he feels like he is in six words. Yeah. That had to be a powerful yeah. exercise. It was, you know, he's a writer. And so obviously as writers, they get these exercises to do. And, and it was, you know, write, write about yourself in six words. Um, so yeah, it, and I thought that it, it, it was, I love it. I, when he came up with it, it was just, oh my gosh, this just says so much about, about us. Yeah, you know? yeah. It reminds yeah. me of, uh, I don't know if this is a true story or not, but I, I think there's a story that, around there that um, someone like Ernest Hemingway was asked to write um, a full story in like three or five words or something. Um, and I think that you'll have to, somebody will have to look this up afterward, but I think the story ended up being um, baby shoes, unused $5. Um, and so it's just this idea of how much you can read into those few words. Yeah. Yeah. Very powerful. Very, very powerful. Well, so you do a lot of 
coaching with leaders and teams. How does identity come into or surface in your work with leaders and teams? You know, I would say that when you start a coaching engagement, whether it is with an individual or whether it's a team, you, the first thing you try to do is you just try to understand, you know, who is this person, right? Um, where do they come from? What are their aspirations? What are their dreams? What are their strengths? What areas are, that they want to work on? So I would say that we look at identity from a different perspective, but really understanding as a person or as a team, what does this, if I had to describe or define this team right now, right, what is the identity of this team? And then based on the identity of this team, um, as they are now, what identity would they like to have in the future and why, right? And I think maybe that's kind of where the identity kind of question comes in. Um, and the deeper question would be, and why, right? Why do you have this identity today? And why do you want to have a different identity, um, you know, going forward? Do you think, do you think um, teams are really capable of answering that question? Why do we have this identity today? I think it's probably a little bit harder. Um, and I think at its core, it might have to start with, you know, as a team, you know, why, why do we have a team, right? And usually a team is formed because we have a common goal towards something. And I think that once we get the team to recognize that we have a common goal towards something, maybe that's where you can start to shape the identity conversation. So as a team, what's our collective identity in terms of our ability, our desire, our passions, our fears about meeting that goal? And so I think that maybe is how it might come in. Yeah, that's really interesting. That, that I hadn't thought about this, but you, one thing that surfaced as you're talking is this idea that some of these groups, while we may call them a team, that may not actually be part of their identity. They may not actually see yeah. themselves as a team. They might just think that they're individuals and yet we're calling them a team. We're doing this work around being a team. And yet that might not actually be even a part of their identity. Exactly. You know, and I'm glad you brought that up because very often we have reporting structures, right, to a single manager. But at the same time, that single manager may or may not thought, have thought through, I have a team that I need to get something done through, as opposed to I have a group of individual contributors that I'm working with. Um, and to the extent that the manager really tries to assess, you know, do I have individual contributors that I have to make successful or do I really have a team that's going to really help shape them as a leader as well, I think. Yeah. So how do you take a group of individual contributors, a, a group who sees themselves as individuals, mm -hmm. but needs to operate as a team, how do you get them to start thinking of themselves or seeing themselves as a team? You know, I think the first thing is to first recognize that there are individuals, because obviously we don't want to lose identities as part of being a team. And so I think the first thing is to, you know, acknowledge who everyone is, maybe have them get to know each other so that they can really understand, um, you know, who they are but as individuals, but also what they might have in common with other people. And so you start to build the synergies around starting from where they're at and then maybe starting to show 
how, where the similarities lie in in themselves and and you know how they approach things, and then move on to okay. So now that we actually have a sense of you know um, our individual components, how do we take these individual components and figure out how to shape ourselves into the team that we need to or want to be? Um, and I think that's kind of an approach to take. Yeah. It's such, it's such an evolutionary process to take a group of individuals and have them um, actually and effectively operate as a team. Yeah, as you're, it is. As you were talking, I was actually thinking about um, this conversation my wife and I just had a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we were talking about some of our individual kind of challenges and struggles. And there was this realization between us that if we're really the couple, if we're really as united as we want to be and as we say we are, that we should be uh, that we should be sensing or seeing my spouse's problems as much uh, as my own. So mm-hmm. rather than me seeing this challenge that uh, in this example that my spouse is facing in a team example, it could be somebody else rather than seeing it as, well, that's their issue to deal with. And I'll, you know, I'll be here and I'll be the cheerleader, Support. right? Seeing it as no, actually, if we're, if we're really in this together, then this is as much my challenge to work through as it is hers and vice versa. I love that. Absolutely. You know, because when we get into a relationship with someone, what are we doing? We're forming a team in some ways, right? Um, and, I, and I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, you speak about you and your wife being a couple. And while you have your individual goals, your individual dreams and the things that you want to do, um, you know, on your own, there is the sense of you're a unit, right? Yeah. And the decisions that you make impact her, the decisions that she impact, she makes impact you. And so not talking about it and being in it together really, um, you know, is probably not as healthy as to your point, coming to the realization that these are collective um, con- concerns, are collective things for discussion, are collective, um, you know, ways of approaching things. Um, yeah. And Kyle, you know, I, you know, you brought up your wife and, and, and in the context of, you know, family life. And the, the, the book that I wrote, Cool, Calm and Respected, was actually a way to show that um, the leadership skills that we use in our professional lives are very, very similar to those that we use in our personal lives. So it's not as if though to say that people who we lead at work are like children, but it's more to say that there's always going to be some kind of a hierarchical relationship when you have reporting structures and family trees are hierarchical in their nature. And there's a lot of overlap in terms of how do we approach being leaders of ourselves and of others, both at home and at work. And what you just said just just tied it together for me again. Right. Yeah, I always think it's so interesting, you know, that someone um, believes they can be one thing at work. And then just turn it off and be something else after work. And and there may be people out there that are really effective at doing that. I just haven't come across that person. Yeah, I don't think so. You know, I think there's different, you know, the, the work you and the um, personal you may be different in terms of the subject matters and the the, the, the degree of privacy and the degree, degree of information that you share 
But you, how you show up is probably very same. Sorry, it's probably the same when you show up um, at work and when you show up um, at home. Yeah. Do you, do you see that in yourself, Kyle? I'm just curious as to um, whether you see that in yourself. Um, I mean, I... Uh... I, I don't, I'm not as good at car compartmentalizing my life as other people are. Uh -huh. um, and so, I mean, I feel like I show up the way that I show up, regardless of where I'm showing up. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yep. but I, but I do think there are people that are better at that than, than I am that, uh, that, and I don't know if it's good or bad, but that there are people who compartmentalize their lives better than I do um, and show up differently than than I do. And I, I don't know, I guess as I'm thinking out loud, there are moments where I need to show up differently. Um, and I force myself to do it in a professional environment when I wouldn't force myself to do it in a personal environment. Uh, so you kind of let your, um, kind of your guard down a little bit, maybe in a personal environment. Well, actually what I was thinking is, you know, there are days I'm a, I'm a fairly big introvert, um, by nature. And there are plenty of days where I don't want to be in front of a group of people. I don't want to be, uh, you know, all eyes on me. And yet I have, you know, three either speeches or facilitations or workshops scheduled in a week and I show up and I make it happen. And, you know, nobody thinks the difference of it. Um, but in my personal life, I can think of times where my family probably wants me to show up in that same kind of way. And yet I give myself the excuse or the, you know, the justification that, well, I don't have to show up uh, for my family, but I have to show up for an audience, which is, you know, depressing right. to say out loud, but, <laughs> but, uh, but it's a good realization for me to have, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you, you do need your downtime. And as you say, you know, I'm, I'm also an introvert. And so when we're at home, we just want to be able to just have some of that downtime. But I'm sure that, you know, you probably a little bit hard on yourself and that you still show up with, to your family in a very different way that is not necessarily in a speech kind of way, but you're available. And so you're showing up as engaged, right, versus as the public speaker, but you're still engaged. I hope that's how they experience me, uh, uh, but it definitely makes me think about it, how I'm showing up for my, for my family. Yeah. yeah, right. So I love the title of your book, Cool, Calm, and Respected. If someone were to read it, what's give me two key points that they would take away from it. What are the two big ones that stand out to you? Yeah. And I would say um, the one key point is, and I, and I actually have this in, the, in the, um, the beginning of the book, is, you know, to be cool, like, you know, this person's so cool, right? This manager's cool. This person's cool. To be cool, you really have to be warm. You really have to care. To be calm actually takes energy and it makes energy. So when you're calm, you actually have to self-manage and self-monitor. But when you do that, you actually create positive energy around you. And then to be respected, you really need to um, respect those who, who are respectful of you. So, you know, be respected by those that you care about. Um, you have to be respectful to others in order to get that respect. And it's very, very simple. So to be cool, calm, and respected, you need to be warm, you need to be energetic in a different way, and you need to show respect. That's really interesting. I, I love that. And I was thinking of cool in a different way, but I, when you say somebody who's cool, like that person's cool, what's interesting about that is 
we often say that about people who make us feel better about ourselves. So it's not the person who's putting themselves up on a pedestal, who uh, you know is walking around with arrogance, who has it all that I look at and think, wow, that person's really cool. It's the person who, when I'm around, they make me feel better about myself. I walk away thinking that person's really cool. And I think that that ties yeah. into your idea of, of to be cool, you've got to be warm. Yes. Yes. And you know, it's funny that you say that because I also read a definition of charisma because you know how, you know, sometimes you think a, a charismatic person is, you know, just someone who just comes into a room and that owns the room and that what, um, you know, defines charisma. But I read somewhere that charisma is more about how you make others feel than who you are. And that's what a charismatic person is, is how they make others feel. And so to your point about when you think of someone who's cool, it's how they make, how they made you feel. Um, yeah. 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 I love that. It, it, <laughs> this is not a plug for me, but I have this whole humility model that I've, I've shared with my audience uh, a number of times. And my whole definition of humility is when there is balance between how you see yourself and your own potential and how you see others and their potential. So anytime that that is out of balance, when you see yourself as having more potential and better than others, then humility is out of balance. And when you see others as having more potential or value than you do yourself, humility is out of balance. And so this idea that true humility is recognizing your own capabilities and potential and at the same level recognizing the capabilities and potential of those around you i love that as well yeah yeah you know and as you said that you know so we talk about our potential and then the potential of those around us and one of the chapters in my book that i thought a long time about is as i mentioned earlier you know hierarchical structures right there's hierarchical structures in the workplace. There's hierarchical structures at home. And when I came to think about it, one of the chapters is called The Key to the Tree is You. Because what I realized is in a hierarchical structure, we either tend to maybe naturally, you know, or, or, or are incented when we're hiring the tree to feel better or that we need to be better than those that are, you know, quote unquote, lower in the tree. And so we maybe we put pressure on ourselves or maybe we, we ourselves have this ego where we think we're better. And so when I thought about trees, when you have a fruit tree, whether the fruit is at the top of the tree or at the bottom of the tree, irrespective of where a piece of fruit is on the tree, it's just as sweet. And so the, 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 the realization that I came to, came to is that no matter where you are in the tree, you aren't any better or worse than anyone else. And it's up to you to realize that and not act any better or worse than anyone else or, or feel better or worse than anyone else. Mm, I love um, that. I love that. that, kind of that ties is a, in with your humanity. That's how yeah. that ties in with just what you said. Uh -huh. Yeah. I mean, that's a beautiful visualization. It's a great analogy to think about the idea that no matter where the tr fruit is on the tree, it has the same sweetness, the same value, the same potential. I love that. Yeah. yeah. How did you come up with that? I don't know. You know what? I think in concepts, I think in analogies. I have a terrible memory, Kyle. Terrible, terrible memory. And so for me to remember things, I have to come up with concepts. 
And so as I was kind of writing the book, it was like, okay, you know, people that are going to be reading my book are probably going to be people who are in leadership roles. They don't have time, right, to, to read. And so what if I just gave them eight concepts to remember? And so I try to title each, each um, chapter as a concept. And if they just remembered eight concepts, I hope that they've actually gained something from what I've learned along the way. Yeah. Well, that's brilliant. I mean, one thing we know for sure is that making things visual um, is improves memory and retention. Uh, there's actually a great study that people can go look up of the man who was able to remember the longest string of numbers. Yeah. And the way that he did it was he actually visualized himself at the finish line of a marathon. Uh-huh. And he uh, remembered each person crossing the line. And the first four numbers were their bib number. And the next six numbers were their time. Um, wow. And that's how he remembered all this massive string of numbers. And it's like, at 10 minutes long to hear the string of numbers, but he remembered them all using visual visualization. Wow. So I love that you've, you've pulled that principle into this just by nature without even people having to think about it, that you've created a visual for them to remember these things. Yeah. And it's so funny, you know, because I actually had uh, someone, an illustrator draw a visual for each chapter for me. Cause I thought that, Oh, you know, what, Anything that's going to help solidify this concept, um, let's just try, you know. Um, so Yeah, that's fantastic. I love that. So what comes next for you? I mean, you have this awesome book that I'm totally fascinated by, especially because I found out the simplicity of the principles and the visual elements you've brought. What comes next? Yeah, so what comes next for me is, you know, I'm actually at a decision point in my life. And, you know, you talk about making strategic decisions, right? The, you know, your whole... Yeah, absolutely. Um, everything that you do is around making strategic decisions. And so, um, as you may or may not be aware, my background is actually in technology. So I started off as a developer, um, eventually got into, um, you know, program management, project management, and people management. And um, when I moved to um, New York... I actually thought, you know what, I'm not going to get back into a people management role. I'm just going to go contracting in, in an IT role. And so I did it and then immediately realized that I missed the people development aspect of the role. And so I decided to get my coaching certification and become a certified coach. And along the way, my whole mindset is I'm transitioning, right, from being a techie person, from being a, a manager um, in technology to being a, an executive and leadership development coach. And I'm at the point now where I'm saying, wait a minute, does it really have to be a full transition, right? Or is my, is my value add really trying to figure out how to bring all of those pieces together um, in a, in a, in a, with a team, with a pilot uh, kind of, a team that's willing to experiment with me, that's willing to say, you know, let's take a team, and not only are we trying to build a software product with this team, but we also want to build the team at the same time. So really be ingrained on a day-to-day basis with the team, helping them shape, define the project, but also helping them shape and define themselves in, as individuals and as a team. So that they come out of this whole thing, not only with a product, but just like a, a team that was so much stronger than they might have been if we weren't consciously building the team at the same time. 
And so that's where I'm at right now. I'm trying to figure out how do I do this? Because that would be so cool to be able to do. That would absolutely be so cool. And it's the whole idea of practice like you play. So it's, to your point, you're not just practicing this idea of being a team in artificial scenarios. You're putting them into a real scenario with an opportunity to practice and have something tangible come out of it. I think it's a brilliant idea. I think you should absolutely pursue it. I could see um, a ton of value coming out of that experience. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that encouragement. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's as I said, it's something that I just need to think through. You know, how do I do this and how do I pitch it um, so that it's actually something that someone's going to want to take a chance on with me to actually do it in this way? Yeah. So you see yourself pitching this to other organizations? Yeah. You know, I would say, you know, teams that, you know, a, a team, right, that really wants to grow, someone who believes in the value of developing people, um, and, and at the same time saying, you know, let's, let's build teams who learn how to trust each other. Let's, let's be a maybe pilot team and a pilot project to see how well this works. And if it works well, let's just then roll it out to other, other aspects of the organization. That's kind of what I would like to do. You know, here's the thing, you know, in startup companies, we talk about MVP, right? Minimal, minimum viable product. Yeah. And what I like to do is redefine MVP. I'd like to redefine MVP as maximum value potential. And so out of everything we do, not only figure out what is the MVP for the product, but what is the maximum value potential of the team through building this MVP. I love it. I, uh, I'm excited to see how this shapes up. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a fantastic idea. I mean, obviously, there's kind of no point to building a team who's not actually doing boots on the ground work. And so yeah. using that entire process as this self-reinforcing cycle is, uh, is perfect. Yeah. And, you know, Cal, you know, when you do executive coaching, as you know, you know, you have your session with the executive, you do the assessments, you do the debriefs, you meet with them on a regular basis. But we're really not there always to observe them and to watch them in the moment. You know, some coaches do that and some um, some some clients want that and have the ability and freedom and the vulnerability to have a coach be there by their sides in real by their side in real time. But 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 a lot of the a lot of the times, you know, we, we meet them in between, right? And they're doing the work on their own in between. So, you know, this, this whole model of let's just kind of observe constantly, right? Let's let the coach be ingrained in the process. Um, you know, that um, is, is a model that some coaches use and, and are very effective in using. And then just translating that into software development, doing it while you're doing software development, I think would be an interesting thing to do. Because, you know, techie people, you know how we are, right? We, we tend to be focused on the tasks at hand and not, not on the softer skills. Uh -huh. And now it's trying to figure out how to, how to do that together. Yeah. It's going to require a lot of vulnerability. I mean, openness to vulnerability. Yeah. You know, it's one thing, so it's one thing to go through these team building activities in scenarios that don't, um, don't pull in ideas like competition, don't pull in ideas like uh, real value being created or being demonstrated. Uh, you know, so it's one thing to go to an event and, and 
be a team and you know pretend like you're a team in these games but to put it into the real world scenario is where uh where it becomes more challenging and so on the front end getting the preparation right so that you have people who are willing to buy into the experience um that's going to be a big big piece yeah yeah um so yeah that's 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 what's next for me is really trying to figure that part out trying to clarify it more in my mind and also then you know, see if um, it's something I can actually start to do more of. Well, I will definitely keep posted to hear about how that goes. And if I come across folks or organizations, I'll pass them along your way. I think it's an awesome opportunity. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, so Diane, thank you for joining the podcast. Um, Obviously, people can go get your book. Well, where can they go get your book? Yeah, it's actually on Amazon. Um, Cool, Calm and Respected. Um, oh, they can go to my website, which is dianechangcoaching.com, and there is a, um, a link on my website to the book as well. Awesome. So I would encourage everyone to go check out Diane Chang's book, Cool, Calm, and Respected. Uh, simple principles, a lot of visual elements there. You heard one of the analogies that was beautiful. Um, Diane, I want to thank you for joining the podcast. This has been a very fascinating discussion. Thank you so much, Kyle, for having me. I've enjoyed um, having a chat with you. It's been great. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, folks, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Art of Strategic Reaction. Stay tuned for the next episode, my friends.